I am very excited to introduce our guest today. We will start with Jaime Garcia, who is an Al- a, a Salvadorian immigrant who lives in Canada now, has written extensive articles on the ongoing Bukele presidency, as well as their Bitcoin rollout. He currently works in, oh my God, I it starts with an I and I cannot think of the word. Jaime, save me for the love of God. Oh my God, you told me this this morning. Yeah, no worries. I, I work for an insurance company up here in Canada. Just a regular pleb. I, uh, you know, just a regular Joe, earn money and pay for my bills and save some sats if there's any leftover at the end of the month. And on the other side of the conversation, we are joined by the chief strategy officer of the HRF, who has written countless essays about how Bitcoin is helping people today, right now, even though it may not necessarily be in the forefront of how you can use it, as well as the author of just required reading for everyone in the Bitcoin space, Check Your Financial Privilege, Alex Gladstein, Jaime, thank you both for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for the invite. So I will... I wanted to start by giving you each an opportunity to just sort of have an opening remarks about this conversation to establish sort of what side of the coin each of you guys will be discussing. Then we're going to dive into Bukele's actions, just Bukele's actions solely, then expand that into how his actions are impacting El Salvador and El Salvadorians, and then further expand that on to how that's going to impact Bitcoin. Alex, we will start with you, please. You're muted. No, we still can't hear you. Oh, shoot. Well, in that, should we shift over to Jaime yep. first? Jaime, it looks like you're going to make the opening statement first. That's sorry about that. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, like for me, you know, I'm hoping (laughs) rather than this being a debate, it's more of a conversation, a dialogue. And so, you know, being Salvadorian and having lived most of my life outside of the country as an exile from the 80s, from the Civil War, you know, I can definitely acknowledge that I have a lot of not only societal, but financial privilege. And so, you know, this situation on the ground is quite differently. But I also have been there. I know what it's like to be there. And I and I provide the perspective of a Salvadorian, a Salvadorian who is part of the diaspora, who, like many, is part of the diaspora, want to see the country progress. And we, many of us, feel like Bitcoin is a way to do it, right? So, and, you know, looking intently into the developments of how the country is tackling security, individual freedoms, financial freedom. And for me, you know, I'm not like some in Bitcoin Twitter claim not a statist. I'm not a promoter of Bukele or his government, but I'm definitely a supporter of when things get done right. Do I have criticisms? Of course. But so far, I think that El Salvador's in a good path and, you know, I will continue to support if, if it's in this path. And if it changes, then I will change my mind. I will change my outlook and I'll, I'll be sure to write about it as well. Thank you, Jaime. Alex, I believe we have your audio sorted. Yeah, sorry, guys. Nice. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of my nuanced views on this came from the research 
a reporting I did last year, which is in a Bitcoin magazine essay called The Village and the Strongman, which I would encourage everyone to check out. At the end of the day, this, this was all about a handful of really impressive people in the community of El Zante who helped get get this all off the ground. And I would, I would really credit that movement as opposed to, to the government. There are a few things that I'd probably agree with the Bukele supporters on to start choosing Bitcoin as a second currency, as opposed to some CBDC project or, you know, a Chinese alliance is, is great. I think that that's something they deserve credit for presenting an alternative to the IMF. Very good. This is an institution that is you know, sort of ravaged a lot of the world and exploited it, funneling resources from poor countries to rich countries for decades. Doing mining with geothermal and volcanoes, terrific, great idea. Let's research and implement that. Potentially selling bonds based on that. Very interesting idea. I hope it works out. Attacking remittances, which are exploitive and, you know, too expensive, etc. Great idea. Putting El Salvador on the map. I mean, that's a big accomplishment of Bukele. And uh, yeah, obviously no one would be talking about El Salvador had he not done this. And then finally, you know, highlighting the role that the U.S. has had in El Salvador, the devastating role that U.S. foreign policy has had in El Salvador. These, these are all things that I would probably, you know, agree with the Bukele supporters on. Then I have disagreements, right? So at the end of the day, you know, the reason I like Bitcoin is, you know, basically because... <laughs> It's going to separate money from from state. I view state adoption of Bitcoin and corporate adoption of Bitcoin as a as an outcome of its mechanism. I don't think we need to cheer on governments, you know, that that expedite this process. I don't think we need to cheer on corporations necessarily that expedite this process. I think we should just focus on individual freedom. That's what Bitcoin's all about, and and that's that's where there's a lot of concerns in El Salvador. I mean. I think what this comes down to probably for Bitcoiners is like, what, what do you, how do you, what do you make of the war on terror in the United States? A lot of people listening are probably Americans. I mean, was that a fair trade-off to trade off freedom and privacy for, you know, security? In my view, it wasn't. In my view, the war on terror has been a disaster and it's like totally, you know, basically lit our civil liberties on fire. And, you know, I think that what Bukele has done is, 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 is no different. And probably for a lot of Salvadorans, like way worse. I know we're going to get into it, but these states of exceptions where tens of thousands of people have been arrested with no trial whatsoever, no legal defense, where minors are treated as adults, this surveillance state where journalists and activists get spied on through like very expensive software, Pegasus, these new laws, these foreign agent laws, which, you know, if, if passed, would literally confiscate 40% of all foreign income to NGOs and freeze their bank account if if he doesn't like what you're doing. These containment centers that he put people in when COVID first broke out, where people were being arrested for just wearing face masks and tens of thousands of people were jailed for you know a public health issue. And then the fact that he's, <laughs> there were Supreme Court justices who were like, no, we don't like that. And then he like got rid of them. And then he's prepping for, you know, basically running for life. You know, he wants to be president for life. So you know, I think there was a way for Bukele to play this the right way. And he didn't do that. I mean, my, you know, as a closing statement for the opening here, I just would say that I, I think he could have brought the Bitcoin movement to El Salvador a little differently. It didn't need to be necessarily legal tender. It definitely didn't need a Chivo app. He could have just removed capital gains on it and promoted it in a peaceful way. And then he could have stepped off the stage and not prepped to run again and violate the constitution. He could have spent four to eight years roaming the world as like a 
I don't know, Bitcoin Kofi Annan, and then maybe run again later, according to the laws of his nation. He doesn't want to do that. It's not about Bitcoin for him. It's about power and control. So I'd like to start first on just some of his actions. Alex, you've laid out some of his things, such as, you know, removing members of the Supreme Court, going after businesses or people that don't necessarily agree with him. We've seen a lot of reports about, you know, his tough on crime stance, if you if I can just borrow something from from the US. And we've seen some of the reports coming out of how much crime is down and how many gang members he's locked up, as well as some journalists who don't agree with him as well. Jaime, in regards to some of these actions and re- reports coming out, what are, what are your feelings on this and how do you, I don't want to say justify, but how do you absorb this information? And I'll, I'll just sort of like leave, leave a little tail end and let you complete that. Well, let me just begin by saying that I acknowledge and, you know, some of the things that Alex has said, I think that we are in agreement with the first set of uh, his list. I think where we're probably going to dis- disagree a little bit is in terms of the embellishment of some some of the, the wording that he's used to, to actually describe some really complex events that have happened in El Salvador and, you know, reduced to talking points by mainly his, his opposition, right? And, and one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know in El Salvador is that the vast majority of uh, media is actually controlled. And if we're going to talk about, you know, Bitcoin terminology, it's centralized among the ruling elite, the entrenched ruling elite, as Alec calls it in his book. And, and they use it as a mechanism to sway public opinion, especially when they see that their interests and their property and their business and, and so on are, are threatened. And, uh, and so what happens is that when they're the ones controlling the narrative, especially to, towards international audience, then that's kind of what we hear. And we get reduced to, to, to these, you know, shocking talking points. And, and of course, you know, the, the moniker of, of a dictator and so on. The reality is that for most Salvadorans living in the country, what they have experienced is a drastic reduction in insecurity. Extortion has decreased significantly. People can go out and enjoy the country, which is a beautiful country, and and so on. So, I think you know we have to be careful because not all, not not the entire story has been told. Alex pointed out a, a like a, a a long list of things. <laughs> you know, it's difficult for me to address all of them, but you know I can just address the one piece, which is like a lot of these points are being advanced by by traditional mediums, but traditional papers, traditional channels in the country, which are all either foreignly funded with no actual local subscription, therefore not independent at all, as they claim. You know, one, one of the sources that, that uses a lot of these talking points, their, their motto is uncomfortable journalism. Just think about that. What is that a euphemism for? I mean, it's basically a, a political tabloid, right? And so we have to be very skeptical when we hear these coming from, again, the entrenched elite from El Salvador who own these mediums, right? We have to go down there and listen to the people on the ground and see what they're saying. And what they're saying is that things are better. Even when you look at polling, 
you know, polling about security. How do you feel today? Not about Bukele, but just how do you feel today about your personal security? It's much better than it was before. So there is a tangible improvement in the country's safety and security, which is essential. If, if El Salvador is going to attract their diaspora, people like me and my family and others, as well as tourists and Bitcoiners and people who want to invest in the country. Jaime, could you, not without going into a full history lesson here, but could we get a quick little rundown of the civil war in El Salvador from the 80s and sort of how that led to the two-party system that somehow, some way, Bukele was at one point involved in and whether you agree with the way he came up was instrumental in my in my opinion, of tearing down this two-party system and introducing a legitimate third party. Could you walk us through just a little bit of that? Yeah, definitely. And I would start by saying that, you know, El Salvador has never truly been free, even from pre-Columbian times where the Mexica, now it's speaking, you know, people ruled over the, the Maya and the Lenca in the region, all the way to the Spanish then ruling over, over all the indigenous people. Then the, uh, the, the Creole Spanish descendant, but locally born ruling class, and then the military dictatorships in the early 19th century to then the Civil War. It's never been truly free. The Civil War really started because, again, just poverty, money, <laughs> the control of resources. The ruling class, which, you know, it's often referred to as the, um, the proverbial 14 families, you know, there's more of them, but, you know, the 14 families that control everything, specifically at that time in the mid-1900s, the production of coffee and the land that produced that golden grain coffee wanted to keep things, they wanted to control all, all aspects of the country to secure their investment. And that led to a massive murder, thousands of indigenous people in, in the area of Sonsonate in the country. And that created basically uh, a, a movement, a guerrilla movement, a leftist movement that said, look, you know, like common Salvadorans just want to be able to uh, live in peace and freedom and have the ability to earn their living with dignity. And, you know, at that time, it was basically having a, a plot of land where they can produce their own food. And essentially, I mean, without going into too much detail, that led to, to the movement that was against the government, right? Now, the government at that time was a dictatorship, and, and, but the U.S. supported that dictatorship, brutal dictatorship, and, and they, they kept supporting them all the way uh, into 1980, into 1982, 83, when the current constitution was installed. And then from that point on, there were several parties. The, the main one at that time was the Christian Democrats. But then really it, it became just ARENA, which is a right-wing party, and they control government for th and, and the state for 30 years. In 1992, with the demise of the Soviet Union, with no more funds coming to the left, it's guerrilla, and really no way out of this through armed conflict, a so-called peace agreement was signed between the government at the time, controlled by ARENA, 
and the Leftist Guerrilla, which is an organization called FMLN, which stands for Liberation Front, Farabundo Marti. Farabundo Marti was one of those leaders of, the, of that indigenous massacre that I talked about earlier. And so, so then they created that party in, in kind of his honor. And it was an amalgamation of leftist organizations. And they signed this peace treaty, which basically said that they would give up the armed struggle, they would become an official party, and they would make some amendments to the constitution to allow for that. And then that's kind of what happened. And then from that point on, those two parties, they've been swapping, you know, not like, you know, it was like Arena for a while and then the FMLN. But what people saw was that the sacking and the corruption and, and all of the negative things that, you know, one party promised to address through the peace accords. Then the next party, the FMLN, continued to, to make those similar errors and the population becoming more impoverished, insecurity becoming even worse. And in 94, with the Clinton administration deporting many Salvadorians from the U.S., the exportation of, of gang violence. And just think about that in, in a, it's a perfect storm. You know, no jobs, because essentially the job before, what fueled the economy was war. You either employ to be in the army or in the, the guerrilla movement and the reconstruction and the, it's sort of like the fighting of war. And then now you have none of that. No reconstruction effort. All the reconstruction money going to, you know, corruption and, and embezzlement and so on. And then all these young people taking their street gang gang warfare from the, from the U.S. down to El Salvador where there's... You know, the economy is in shambles. So a perfect storm and nothing was addressed and, you know, came to the point where this allowed people with different ideas, like not just Bukele, but many other people who thought similar to become elected in traditional parties at first. But then when they saw that it was the same corruption that they had seen before, they created a new movement, right? Bukele got kicked out of his party. He formed a new party and, you know, asked Salvadorians to support him, put a platform in place and said, this is what I'm being elected. If, if elected, this is what I'm going to carry out. It's called Blancuscatlan, which is the original name of El Salvador. And, and it's online. If you Google it, it's online. Everything that has happened, including the, the ridding of the judges, as Alex puts it, it's on there. Nothing has been ad hoc or, you know, just policy on the fly. It's, it's been all there from the beginning. And, and that plan was created with the input of all Salvadorians, including the diaspora. Thank you, Jaime. Alex, going off of, you know, what Jaime has shared, I wanted to highlight a couple of things that we shared before, before we had you to join us. So when Bukele ran for his first public office was for the municipality of, and Jaime, excuse my terrible Spanish pronunciation, Nuevo Cuscatlan? Cuscatlan, yeah. And Cuscatlan. that's actually a, a Nahuatl word. It's not even a Spanish word. It's a Nahuatl word. Uh, Nuevo is a, it's new Cuscatlan. So. Thank you. So in, in his first mayoral campaign, he won this mayoral seat in 2012. Part of his campaign was a promise to be tough on crime. It is reported that this jurisdiction was having 12 homicides a year. By the end of his term as mayor, after three years, there were a total of three homicides. 
obviously the reporting, there may be questions in that regard. There, there, all right. P already threw out the question on this reporting that we were already sort of thinking in the back of our mind. Same with his sort of term in, as mayor of San Salvador, ran on a tough on crime approach, wanted to be stricter against gang violence, and again, ran on a similar approach as one of his campaign promises for presidency. We've seen that come to light. We've seen him follow through, regardless of how aggressive we may think his actions are. My question to you is, if he is running on this promise and following through on the promise for his constituents, is he doing right by them in doing that? Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BitMEX. BitMEX is one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade, actively donating to developers and putting out some of the most cited research articles. What you might not know is that BitMEX recently launched a brand new spot exchange and mobile app that takes the experience of buying and holding to the next level. We know that, especially in uncertain market conditions, you need an exchange that is trustworthy and innovative. Sign up at bitmex.com today, check out the BitMEX blog for some great market insights, and stay tuned to our podcast for more from their team. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your digital assets. Collateralized loans are great for living expenses, buying a car, or even for when you just have to have that sweet Rolex. But what isn't so great is when you then lose the ability to trade your assets once your loan has been taken out. So just like you, Moon Mortgage believes you should be able to have your cake and eat it too. Moon Mortgage's Trade and Borrow is the world's first digital asset loan margin account allowing you to instantly trade your Bitcoin while borrowing against your account, all with next to zero insolvency risk, no origination fees, nor any third-party risk, as Moon Mortgage will never lend out your digital assets. Welcome to the future of collateralized lending. Visit moonmortgage.io today to learn how you can trade, borrow, and then trade your digital assets some more. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference, which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 Euros for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. That's for me. Or for, yeah. Okay. No, that's for you, Alex. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm probably obviously the wrong 
wrong person to ask. I'm biased. I'm a civil liberties activist. I don't think it's ever acceptable to strip civil liberties from the population. There's no no condition, you know, liberty or death. You know, that's that's my philosophy. I think that centralizing power in the hands of the militarized state is bad with no exceptions. When it comes to the Salvadoran specifics, I mean, clearly gang violence was down before Bukele took power. Clearly it went down a lot more while he was in power at both at the local and, and federal levels. I, I, I don't know exactly, you know, what, what you want to attribute to that. Clearly a lot of it is the fact that he's, he's you know, been hyper aggressive about jailing massive amounts of people without due process. And this creates like a fear state among anyone who's like, you know, thinking about causing trouble. This is this is what they do in China, of course. I think a, part of it is also the fact that he collaborates with the gangs. So, and I, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but it just should be said that it's well documented that they even call him Batman. Like they have a word for him, that they, like in, in all their private communications. So, you know, if you are only concerned about homicide rate, if that's your concern, um, then yeah, you should, then, then I would expect you would, you would be totally cool with a totalitarian police state and, and, and you would give up anything to get there. But that's just not the view that I have. And I don't think that's the view that a lot of Bitcoiners have. I, I don't think that's a view that a lot of Bitcoiners have. I think that they uh, would prefer a smaller state. I think that they would prefer less states of exception. And, and just to give some details here, you know, just think about this carefully and compare it to what you have in Canada, perhaps, perhaps even, where we've seen a decline of democracy arguably there too, and certainly in the United States, especially post 9-11. But let's just consider a couple things. So in this state of exception, the detainees, like if you're like picked up off the street, you don't get a legal defense. There's no like entitlement for that. The the, the right for a group of people to gather in groups of more than two was suspended. So you couldn't even gather like three or four people on the street without that being probable cause for being arrested. The minors being tried in adults thing is just crazy to me. You know, I think that the fact that also that the news outlets were blocked from report even reporting on this and you could get 10 years in prison. You can get 10 years in prison during a state of exception in El Salvador for writing something that could panic the public, right? And again, just to just to reiterate that that more than three, you know, uh, more than 30 journalists and activists like who, who were the most problematic for the government, you know, had their phone infected with, with Pegasus spyware. So they were being monitored closely. You know, all of this, you know, in combination with the numbers, the sheer numbers, you know, more than 50,000 people have, have been arrested in this like war, you know, war on war on the gangs. That's even more than the 30,000 or so that were arrested in the war on COVID. Right. So you've got this strong man who's I don't know what the next war is going to be. War on COVID, war on gangs. God knows what will be next. They tend to they tend to like to frame things in a, in a very dire kind of war, warlike kind of you know, linguistic framework. This, this is what they what they prefer to do to basically, you know, try to blame anyone who opposes them as being weak or, you know, soft. This is this is what they do in America, too. I mean, especially at the local level. I know people listening must know this. You've got these self-righteous police chiefs and governors uh, and, and state reps. And, and they want if you if you stand up for civil liberties and say, well, maybe we shouldn't arrest everybody. They'll say, oh, you're being soft on crime. This is like a classic thing in, in government. And I just think it's excessive and it's bad. I also wanted to go into the COVID stuff. Like, I would imagine that most Bitcoiners are relatively skeptical of government overreaction to the, the the public health issue of the COVID virus. I mean, what Bukele did was, was literally crazy. I mean, he had tens of, he had more than 10, 
more than ten, tens of thousands of people detained. You know, again, totally like without, this wasn't constitutional. And the Supreme Court justices, again, who, who pointed this out were then later fired. I mean, he had people in like containment centers. Of course, this has been totally flushed down the toilet and everybody has forgotten it and pretended it didn't happen. But it was two and a half years ago. It wasn't that long ago. Same guy. He hasn't changed at all. I also wanted to talk briefly about the, the Chiva wallet. So again, like there was a path for Bukele to do this yeah, Alex, uh, hang on. You know, oh, go I, ahead. Good. I, I, yeah. We will get to the Chiva wallet. I want to. Okay. I want to unpack the COVID of it. Yeah. Go first. ahead. Go ahead. So, Jaime, Alex has brought up COVID, and we have we have since seen certain countries that took, and even certain states that took a very aggressive stance on COVID. We've seen others that took a less aggressive stance. You know, understanding and seeing. I think on the other side, hindsight being twenty twenty, and what COVID is now versus what it was then. I'm curious if you felt at the mo at the time that these decisions were being made by Bukele, if they were justified, as well as looking back, if this was an appropriate response to what was deemed at the time a global pandemic. Yeah, so you know, give me a a, a leader of of a country in the world at that time who didn't take some sort of measurement that today, looking back, looks a little bit like an overreaction, right? And so, you know, I would, you know, I would say that in large part, I, I would not disagree that, that, you know, having the, the benefit of looking back, it, it was probably, there was probably better ways to do it. What happens is that you, you have to judge the country by the ability it has to protect its citizens. And again, you know, it, I know that Alex is very concerned with the rule of law. The Constitution of El Salvador states that the primary function of, of the government and of the state is to look after the life of Salvadorians. That is the origin and the end of the entire purpose of, of them, right? And at the time... You know, taking advice from the World Health Organization, from, you know, their own medics, not knowing what we know about COVID at the time, you know, they reacted that way. And primarily because El Salvador does not have the health infrastructure like, like Sweden. Sweden, for example, if you look at it, you know, at the time they were being super criticized about it. But you look at Sweden and, you know, Sweden is a modern country. You know, they have the infrastructure and the, the ability to to deliver health care to, you know, their population in a more and more effective way than El Salvador and most of Central America does. Right. So they also, you know, have access to medicine and, and all of that. And so the decision at that time, you know, according to, you know, what we were being told was was because the, the health infrastructure of El Salvador, the public health infrastructure of El Salvador could not handle a situation like they were witnessing in Spain and Italy at the time. They just simply could not. And uh, in our population, you know, that's, we have a bit of a health crisis too, in terms of diabetes, in terms of, you know, people at high risk for secondary illnesses that may impact, you know, the, the effects of COVID on, 
on the population. And so based on that, that's, that's why the decision was made. You know, do I agree with it now? I think there could have been better ways to handle it, but you know, let's not, you know, let's not put El Salvador in a, in, in a corner and judge them alone. Let's, let's look at what everybody else did at the time, including the, you know, certain states in the U S and, and Canada and Europe. Right. So I don't know if Alex, if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. You know, a Maslow hierarchy of needs, you know, the, at the bottom of the pyramid are your physiological needs, your safety, then followed by safety, love and belonging, then self-esteem and then at the top is self-actualization i feel when it comes to el salvador everybody's judging el salvador by self-actualization when they're just starting to get their physiological and safety needs in order so you know let's maybe pause about it let's check our financial privilege and let's look at everything within context i want to just jump in and push back a little bit there because I think that Alex's point is that the extremes to which the Salvadoran government went during, for example, COVID seems disproportionate given the the situation. And I think that, you know, people are very, very, or were very, very quick to, to kind of castigate China's behavior during this period, you know, and they were, there were videos of them like welding, building shit. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is so intense. This is horrible. And then there was a lot of fear involved too during that period because people didn't know exactly what was going on and everybody was trying to figure it out. But I think that to Alex's point, these types of situations are, or can be very convenient when one is trying to, you know, suppress the movement of a people and control information flow in a group of people in order to serve different ends. And so I, I, I do think it's, it is, it is, I don't think anyone should be trying to justify those kinds of actions within like a context of sort of like public safety. Cause I think that regardless, I feel like most Bitcoiners at least would argue that like, you know, we should be able to move freely and, and conduct ourselves as we, as we would like. But, but I feel like with El Salvador, because Bitcoin is involved, people tend to, I don't want to say turn a blind eye, but use kind of kid gloves in a way that I think is, is is interesting and counterproductive. Well, as a Bitcoiner, I would tend to agree with you. But, you know, as, as, as a decision maker for the entire country and health and not really knowing if this thing is like, you know, uh, as bad as it could be, you know, I can also understand why things were done the way that they, they were. I mean, you know, yeah, things could have been done better. On, the, on that but again we we're we're two years out from that and and let's remember that el salvador was one of the first country to give up all restrictions you know and you know they, i just recently saw what, one of the things that um what one a tweet from a, a bitcoiner that was leaving el salvador to mexico and he was prevented to go into the plane because he wouldn't wear a mask you don't have to do that in el salvador see when facts change then you have to change your thinking and then you have to change your policy. And that's what's happened, right? So, and, and, and that's that's what shows growth is when you're able to look at the situation and say, you know what, maybe maybe we didn't get it right, but here it is, we're gonna rectify and we're gonna make it right going forward. That's, you know, that's, I think that's more important rather than, than when we got it wrong. You know, like to, to my own kids, I say, it's like, don't be afraid to make make mistakes. 
okay, if you think you're, you're doing the right thing, if you make a mistake, learn from it and move on. This is an extremely charitable description of what he did. In reality, he got tired and couldn't really squeeze any more justification for ex extreme measures out of COVID. So he moved on to the gangs. It's pretty clean, actually, if you look at the chronology of it. Then he was locking up tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people here. I mean, okay, no government, as you say, was was innocent. There, and and it's certainly, it, it ranged, right? I mean, you had China at the extreme end and you had, you know, some other countries that were quite, pretty light touch on the other end. I mean, imprisoning tens of thousands of people certainly is on the extreme end. I mean, we, we, we could be very critical about like, I live in California. I mean, no one was arrested here for, there weren't tens of thousands of people arrested here for not wearing a mask or, or not, not, you know, you know, adhering to some sort of protocol. I mean, the, the, there are degrees of freedom. And this was this was extreme. Once that cooled down, he moved on to other things. And by the way, there were other PR projects there. Like he started this, he, he claimed to build this whole new hospital that was going to be like the leading light of whatever never even got finished. It's still under construction. But again, no, it's it's there. And it actually it's took not done. patients it's not from done. Costa Rica. It's not done. Yeah, it's not well, done, the, though. The, the part where he actually could house extreme cases and, and actually triage, the, you know, the expected flow of, of sick people, that's all completed and is actually functional. Yes, so but it's you, a PR okay. device because it, it's not anywhere close. Have to you gone to the hospital? No, I haven't gone to the hospital. But well, I've then how can you it. say that? No, no, no. See, uh, see, dude, you're in Canada. I mean, what, what? Right now, I am. Yeah. So, you know, are you but, there but right now? Like, no, I, but I'm, my family is there. They have access to the hospital. Okay. Actually. The hospital thing is a total so, PR move. But anyway, we can move on. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it, it just is. It just is. So, if he if he was committed to it and actually cared about it, he would have not like moved on to some other thing. He would have continued to focus on that stuff. But anyway, the point being that Bitcoin that continues to get improved. Okay, Bitcoiners should be extremely skeptical of this guy. Given sure, his, I invite everybody who's COVID down there policy. to go check it out. No, no, no. Forget the hospital. That's just one out of many little things he sprinkled. Okay, in there. we're forgetting but, the hospital now. There were, yes, okay. we're forgetting the the main thing that we're not going to forget is the tens of thousands of people that were arrested without due process. That's the main thing that I've been talking about. Right. What I was trying and we're to say judging is, El Salvador alone when every other country did that. No, I mean, okay, California. Sure, I, no, 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 no. Californian government did not lock up tens of thousands of people without due due process. El Salvador didn't lock up people. Yes, they did. First of all. Yes, they wait, did. Wait, wait, that 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 is undeniable. Wait, there jail? were people that were jailed. Yes, there's th more than thirty thousand people in what what it whatever you. I mean, if you want to sit here and say that's a detention center, but that's a jail, like no, there is a difference. There is a difference. Okay, and, well, and they it, were the, the treatment detained. that you get in jail is is very different than the treatment that that you get in in uh, quarantine. Uh, look, I mean, we're probably on the same page with a lot Good. of COVID okay. stuff. Okay, well, we can move on. The point but, is that's you're right. Okay. That chapter's over. Now he's moved on to the gangs. So now it's tens of thousands of people being arrested without due process. Again, minors being treated as adults, the media being forbidden from reporting on the topic. And this is just, this is the next thing. So what's the next thing going to be? Well, I, mean, I will I, say, I, just I don't know. That in particular is extremely concerning to me. There's a lot that's concerning here. But when whenever the media is prevented from reporting on a topic, that is a huge, huge red flag in my mind. And it's I can't think of any rational way to justify that as a reasonable I mean, action. Again, I went through the reason the, the things that I, I would credit this government for doing. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see why these actions are necessary. Like if you want to pursue a new economic model, if you want to promote Bitcoin in the country, 
I mean, this has nothing to do with locking up all these people. And, and in fact, I think what's kind of noticeable and obvious that I, I realized um, a while ago is that he uses these like announcements to, to sort of, or, or he uses PR and announcements to kind of like distract from like what's happening. He started doing this during COVID. So he used COVID to like basically justify all these actions he had. And then later he, he you know, right after he sacked the attorney general and, and cleaned out the Supreme Court, he had the announcement in, in Miami, which, which I was there for. And by the way, it was, was awesome. It was great. Um, but I didn't, I, I didn't realize what had happened. I was like kind of fooled. Like I didn't realize what, it, what was happening in El Salvador. I was ignorant of what was happening on the ground. I just thought this was cool because I was like a Bitcoiner, right? I didn't actually do my homework on that one. Later at the end of last year, this whole Bitcoin city announcement, which obviously is a huge joke. There's not going to be a Bitcoin city in the way he just like laid out. I mean, it's, it's obviously a distraction was right after they passed, they proposed a new foreign agent law, again, which I described, if you are a journalistic outfit or a human rights outfit in Salvador, in El Salvador now, and this law passes as designed by the government, and you receive any money at all, or any indirect support from like, let's say my organization or any organization, okay, then you have to give 40% of those funds to the government, 40% tax. And it's like, he basically gives license to the banking sector to freeze your stuff. So I mean, he's consistent. And then, of course, the Bitcoin law, when it passed, then when it was implemented in September, it was right after he basically got the Supreme Court to say he could rule forever or whatever. So every time there's like a major kind of erosion of, of the state and his checks and he dismantles checks on his power, he finds some way to distract the public from it. He's a very, 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 very savvy politician. He's very, very good at what he does. That's why he's extremely popular. Alex, can you point out exactly how the law states that? The, or the proposed law states that it forbids people to report on gangs? What, okay, so we're going back to a different thing? Yeah. No, well, the so first thing that you started to talk about, like, the, the thing is that it's difficult to answer all your points when you squeeze in 10. Well, that's because there's so many, so many blatant violations of civil liberties in El Salvador. I mean, we don't, okay. we only have can an hour, dude. We could be here for a I week. know, I know. But can, okay, let's just for argument's sake. 10 years point. in prison for journalists. I'm reading it. 10 years in prison for journalists that could panic the public. You want to challenge that, that? No, that's not what it says. Dude. Wait, okay, wait. <laughs> Okay, there. Go ahead. You read it in Spanish okay, and then no. give a translation. Here's 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 the intent of the law. Okay, it's it's that if you are reporting or in an ethnographic investigation embedded within criminal organizations, it is your duty to report if there is going to be people's lives at stake. Otherwise, you become a, a, an accomplice to the crime. It's just bringing clarification to that because there was instances where so-called journalists were embedded with some of these criminal organizations. They knew some of the things that they were going to do. They wrote about it and failed to report that to the organizations. There's an ethical principle behind journalism. And, and, and yeah, I think that if yeah, the, state, the state doesn't get to decide that. No, but... All. When when journalists don't actually live up to those principles, and you know, I think 
maybe maybe some states will decide to do that. I'm not saying. Okay. It's, well, it's I think right, the audience but... can determine whether or not the government sure. should be writing yeah. the laws for whether or not you know what how journalists should report. But well, um... it's it's more or less about whether you can be accomplice to a crime. So wait, wait, I mean, wait. the government is literally hey. working with the gangs. I mean, I don't, so wait, I'm I don't sorry, know. Can you provide actual evidence that that's happening? Tons. Tons. Wait, 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 okay. Guys, guys, guys. Who is your source? I, What's your source? I've lost the thread personally. Yeah. So what is the higher level topic or the point that that is that we're sort of discussing? I think that Alex, you made the what to, to me feels like a very reasonable point. Like this, this the law that that is apparently saying that there's basically you, you can receive up to 10 years in prison for reporting on gangs. I think there's some nuances there, I mean, that you're going into, but let's just say if we don't do it correctly per the government. Yeah, sure. Well, you well, just but, can't be an accomplice to a crime. That's what it is. So well, when like, you own the you, court you, system, you, Jamie, you, then, you, then you, you, <laughs> you get can, to decide, you, dude, you can report, you can report, you just can't be an accomplice to a crime without re reporting so, it, you know, let me, let me ask you Wait, a who question. Decides? Let's move on. But, but let, let's just say that this, let's say you go back to El Salvador. Mm -hmm. You're there. You have a change of heart. You change your mind after our debate here today and you become critical yeah. of Bukele. Okay. So let's say you contribute to an article in a news story comes out or you in, in some way you are publicly critical of him. I mean, how confident are you that that court system is going to uphold your rights? I mean, how confident are you that this court system, if you are critical of Bukele, is going to actually protect your stuff? Or is this just a country for Bukele supporters now? You know, there are several newspapers, like I said, most media, like 98% mm -hmm. of the media in El Salvador, I would say like, you know, probably the state paper, but, you know, could you believe them either, right? But other than that, is all opposing Bukele. They report daily. Not one journalist is in jail. They have taken actually to put cartoon characters with such disdain, not only for his policies, but for him as a person, actually mocking his two-year-old daughter and insulting her. No one's in jail. Okay, you didn't really answer my question, but... No, like what I'm saying is that the press can report freely. Nobody has gone to jail. Nobody is being prevented from reporting. This is all just embellishment. Who, like, who, like, which of your friends are from El Salvador that are journalists, supposedly, are in jail right now? Well, that would be a pretty low bar, dude. I mean, that would be horrible no, I mean, if journalists were in prison. Yeah, but so there's, there's nobody because it's not happening. Okay, well, I mean, I think that there is something called a climate of fear that governments use. I mean, a lot of people say the same thing about the United States. You know, there's no journalists in prison. I don't know. I mean, you, 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 you can judge, you can judge, you can judge whether or not that makes, that means the media climate is free or not. The point is there are laws in place that prevent people from speaking their mind and from free expression. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, again, if you want to justify, look, this is, this all comes down to this huge philosophical debate over law and order versus freedom. And if, if you want to take the side that, Hey, in special times, we need to restrict the rights of the people to secure the nation, then Bukele is your guy. There's no question. There's no question. I I'm think gonna, you can have both. <laughs> I, I want to hop in here and present a question, Alex, to you. As someone, like I come from the perspective of an American immigrant 
I see laws, how they operate in other countries like Iran, my homeland, as well as in this country. And I see certain benefits as well as some flaws in assuming Western systems into other countries and cultures. There's a historical example of this, and the one I will pull on is Singapore. Regardless of the approach of the prime minister and how long he held power and his approach and toughness against drug and drug users and drug dealers, we cannot discount how far that country and that region has grown as a result from a very strict leader imposing their own will on the country and its people. We've heard Bukele compare himself to this leader from Singapore. We've heard him say statements like, I'm the world's coolest dictator. My question is, are we putting too much emphasis on Western values and principles into a country that quite frankly doesn't want those principles ingrained in, in its society? That's a good question. I mean, you know, and, and like, again, I, I'm going to refer back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and where El Salvador is in that continuum is it's in the safety needs. It's trying to establish personal security, making sure that people have employment, make, making sure that people have health and access to property, you know, yet a lot of liberal Democrats philosophically, in terms of philosophy speaking, not ideology, ideologically speaking, are judging El Salvador to be at that self-actualization. If you are a nation who's developed and self-actualized, at that point, if you start infringing on, you know, randomly on people's rights, of course, that's wrong. El Salvador's not doing that, okay? El Salvador is specifically targeting the people who are extorting the population. That's just not less true. than one percent. Listen, Alex, false. it's less than one percent. No, that's false. It's less than one percent. No, Seventy thousand. No, there's no due process. None of these people have. There's no. There's no trials. They're being put. The tens of thousands of people are being arrested with no mm -hmm. trials. So in how can you say? How can you say it's targeted? So I mean, in the Constitution, under extreme circumstances. Which are conveniently three of the last four years. Like, I don't know. Like, what, when is it not going to be an extreme circumstance? Oh, no. The, uh, El Salvador, to be frank, has been extreme circumstances since the Mexica invaded, you know, the region. Okay. So, right. okay. So, so, so let's be frank. The state of exception was used consistently throughout the Civil War, right? In fact, this, it, it's... It's only recently that hasn't been used and it's been invoked specifically to, to deal with, you know, the insecurity issue. And so when we think about that, the Constitution, because, you know, you said the rule of law, the Constitution permits that as a tool. And the president asks for it from the assembly. The assembly then has to get an absolute majority. That means three quarters of, of a part of the assembly in order to get that. If it doesn't meet that bar, it doesn't, he doesn't get that state of exception. So that that is the due process and that is what's happening, okay? And it's undisputable that that assembly was duly elected with international observers vetting it and qualifying as fair and free. 
Okay. Well, I mean, the audience can fact check that. I, sure. I, no, I, absolutely. I disagree, but no, I think I think just to just to go back to the previous point, I think you have a climate in El Salvador now where like I don't know how anyone. I know there's a lot of Bitcoiners down there who are very pro Bukele who are psyched. Good for them. But like if you're if you're anti Bukele, I don't know how you could possibly be confident that a court would rule in your favor in a high profile case. I, I just well, you don't I have just to be don't pro Bukele or anti Bukele. You can just be pro El Salvador, and I think that that's what a lot of people are. Wait, wait, wait but. That feels like a sidestep because I think no, it's not really. a sidestep. I'm, I'm listen. I'll change my mind about Bukele if he starts to do things that that I feel are in 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 are you in saying a way that, that pressing innocent people? The people who are in jail right now, the majority are gangsters. So wait, wait, wait. Alex just made a statement. He said that if you he would not or he don't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna for butcher this, but he, he said something to the effect of the average person should not feel comfortable or he would not feel comfortable if he was in a high profile case, you know, arguing or uh, expressing negative sentiment around the president of El Salvador. And you said, I think that I would only be worried if I wasn't expressing or if I was expressing negative sentiment around El Salvador as a country. But I think that's still a problem, right? Like one should be able to express one's opinions, whether negative or positive in a high profile case or a low profile case and not have to worry about, you know, whether or not you're going to be put into a dark hole right like how good is your how good is your bitcoin if the government can just come and just grab you without any justification i think that's what bitcoiners should consider here like no you, i mean you you, know? you can use any wallet you want and they're not going to confiscate it from you no no no. i mean how good is bitcoin generally if the government can just take you off the street without a, a, any sort of due process or a trial if they can just i think we'll agree you. that's why we like bitcoin because that can't happen okay well but that, that is happening right now in el salvador no, uh, it's not. People can have their Bitcoin in, in a. No, all right. Sorry, sorry. I'm not. I'm not. Sorry. I'm not uh, being clear. What I'm saying is, let's say you're one of these fifty thousand people who've been detained without mm -hmm. any sort of due process or trial over the last few months in this state of exception. What good is that person's Bitcoin if they're just they could just be jailed like that? Like, Bitcoin is a great tool. I support it. It's, it's the mo most important tool for freedom in the world, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's not sufficient. Like, mm -hmm. and, and the fact that so many people are out here, one thing is being like nuanced about Bukele. And I've tried to do that. I, I at yeah. the outset, I tried to say there are a bunch of things that are positive. I'm not here like Steve Hankey, like with some like, you know, yeah. personal anti-Bukele agenda. I could care less. The fact is you should be nuanced and reasonable. And it is unreasonable to just be like, yeah, oh, whatever. Everything he's done is like, it's not that big of a deal. Let's no. just support him because he's pro Bitcoin. It is a big uh, we deal. Should, we should be alarmed about tens of thousands of people being arrested. And we should be alarmed about like the way he goes after his critics. Like, and we should be alarmed about the way he's preventing justice from being served with regard to the war crimes in the 80s. Like, like you I, should be alarmed. The U.S. should be alarmed. International Bitcoin should a be global alarmed. Or, a global or, citizen. Salvador. Salvador should no, be alarmed. No, global right. citizens should be alarmed, Jamie. So like as in a neo-colonial type of paternalistic way we're going to tell no, you dude, i've written a lot you. more about anti-colonialism than you have like i'm i'm I've very anti-colonial thank you this is why it. i'm 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 actually so what, i'm actually so surprised you, that, you, that i think wait so I, you're you're no, are no. you not are you not clear it's, that he's he's preventing justice from happening at el mazote like you're not clear on that fact oh on the facts of that case you know yeah have you actually have you actually read what happened at el mazote of course. Have you actually I, I, read what happened? At yes, Del I cite Sunday? that book. Well, you said you wrote my in my book. I cite that book. So of course. 
the judge who's trying to get the military dictator folks who had ordered all those massacres in prison has been basically taken out and Bukele's preventing justice from being served. That's the latest, you know, there. And he doesn't he doesn't want to piss off the military, which I understand, because he's got to have them run his freaking COVID containment so centers. Do, do you understand th those do not exist, first of all? Um, what don't exist? There are no COVID containment they, centers. No, no, no. Th those were in 2020. Okay. And now they're the, the gang, the gang centers. Have you read the peace, the, the peace agreement? The peace agreement. Between El Salvador government and the guerrillas. This is, this is not relevant. The point I'm No, it is relevant is... because because it gives amnesty to all these crooks. The same crooks that, that you dislike, I, I dislike. So, why, so if Bukele is on your side then, and he doesn't want them to have amnesty, why is he stopping an investigation into the military because role in the, the massacre? Because the peace agreement gave amnesty to these crooks. Okay. A peace agreement that he did not sign. He was in the side of the people who got He was a child. It's not, he wasn't, exactly. he wasn't responsible. So why, why is, exactly. So then why, why are you claiming that because he's responsible somehow? He is, he is defrocking or whatever verb you want to use. He's basically removing from power judges that want to go after the military who committed these murders in collaboration with the United States government. What, why why is that not a problem for you? Okay, let, let me just ask you something. Mm -hmm. if you, are you, you're going to tie up resources to to go after people who are either dead. No, they're not dead. Long gone they're from old. El Salvador. Some of them are old who have amnesty because of the peace agreements anyway. I mean, I think it would be great to see these people behind prison and behind bars, but I guess that's just my what, personal Do you understand opinion. the concept of amnesty? I think we're I think we're losing the plot a little bit yeah, here, guys. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna step in. Alex and I wanna, diving into guys, guys, hi, man, hi, Matt. Let's just let's we're gonna shift. We have about 30 minutes left on, on this scheduled debate conversation, and I want to shift now to the Bitcoin of it all specifically. We've highlighted the Chivo, uh, the Chivo wallet rollout. I want to discuss that as well as I just want to discuss the fact that Bukele has been purchasing Bitcoin with government funds seemingly has slowed down. A comment we were having internally amongst ourselves is, why have we not seen or heard anything of Bukele announcing buying more Bitcoin, buying the dip in the way he did a year ago, six months ago? And I don't want to necessarily call it the failed rollout, but the delayed rollout of the Volcano Bonds. To Alex's point earlier as well, this promise of a Bitcoin city, a lot of promises around Bitcoin and a lot of moves made by Bukele. Alex, I will start with you to just sort of take both sides of what are the things that Bukele has done with Bitcoin that you will mm -hmm. applaud him for, as well as some of the things you are more critical. Yeah, I mean, I thought that the volcano bomb thing was cool. I think it's a cool idea. I think he's having trouble executing it. I think there's probably forces beyond his control that are preventing from him from executing on that. Macro environment is not great. I think mining is great. Really happy to see, uh, hopefully, the Salvadoran government and society take advantage of the geothermal power that's been sort of, you know, not used. And in general, like, choosing Bitcoin as a, as a national currency is, is great. I think my, my issues have a lot less to do with Bitcoin and a lot more to do with everything else that Bukele does. If I were to nitpick, I think the Chivo wallet is was a misallocation of resources and effort. I know that hindsight's 2020, but generally speaking, I think just sort of just saying, hey, you don't have to pay capital gains on Bitcoin when you live here. 
would have been sufficient. I think launching this like national campaign to, to launch a national wallet is is was a waste of resources at best and and had a lot of malintent at worst because it signaled that he wanted people to use Bitcoin inside a Chibo, which is obviously, as we all know, not Bitcoin. It's somebody else's Bitcoin. It's his Bitcoin. He wanted people to use that system, which of course could be frozen and surveilled just like fiat currency. So I've always said, you know, I've taught a bunch of Salvadorans how to use other wallets. And I know, I know Jaime has two and everything. Great. But like, I would nitpick about Chivo. I think Chivo is the wrong way for governments to, to approach Bitcoin. But in general, I'm not that, I'm not that critical of how he's approached Bitcoin. Yeah, the price has gone down. I think it's smart for the Salvador government to buy Bitcoin. I, I, I don't have a lot of issues in this area. My issues are, are much more on the civil liberties front, but you know, I'll let, I'll let, uh, I'll let you guys fill in. Hi, I present the same question to you just about specifically the Bitcoin rollout. What are your feelings, thoughts, both things he's done successfully and things you are critical of Bukele's Bitcoin mm. rollout? Yeah, no, I think I think that Alex and I probably find a lot of common ground on this. You know, for me as a Bitcoiner, you know, I think that having your own Bitcoin in, your, in, in a sovereign way in your, you know, uh, cold storage is is the way to go you know again i'm going to point to maslow's hierarchy of needs you know that's when you're at the self-actualization stage for most salvadorans that's not where they are because it's really hand to mouth they whatever they they earn they have to spend El Salvador is a high propensity to spend kind of country coin parlance it's a time preference country for sure it but we have to have a low time preference in in kind of uh, uh seeing the the benefits of of the country adopting it. I'm not a huge fan of Chivo for sure, but as the law was designed, Chivo was a necessity because the government had to provide the means for every citizen in the country to accept payment in Bitcoin and automatically get it converted into USD. And again, that's because I think that in some ways, you know, the government realized that a lot of people will not be comfortable holding Bitcoin. So that auto conversion feature was a necessity. And so that's why, that's the primary reason why it, it, it was uh, created, right? The, the, the other part is that, you know, it's because it had to facilitate merchants to be able to accept Bitcoin and again, convert it to USD. And so, you know, it, and I think that the rollout it was quick. Maybe some more time would have been needed to get all the bugs out, which I think, you know, and I agree, would have probably been better received. But I think like, I, I think about, you know, two terminologies in IT, waterfall and agile, right? I think this was an agile project where they rolled it out. They knew there was going to be bugs and then they would iterate based on user input as they went along. And I think that since I've, written a couple of articles and think that it has gotten better and but i think that you know because of the missteps and the rollout you know people are a little bit disenchanted one of the things that i like about the law though is that it provides the ability for the private sector to to provide these services of auto conversion and i think uh, bitcoin beach wallet has done a really good job and and um and in a beta that they have, I've been lucky enough to test it. And it's it's amazing. They use a synthetic dollar, which takes that volatility out. 
And so, but that's one of the main reasons. The other, the other main reason why, and, and I, I would say, you know, I would disagree with Alex on this point where it's like misallocation of money or poorly spent money. It's like, you, you know, the, El Salvador spends money in buying dollars from the federal reserves. It has to service that. It has to, you know, maintain that. Right. So, you know, at some point, if it was going to make Bitcoin legal tender in the country, you had to make a similar investment. Right. And, and I think that, it, you know, there's going to be some people who are always going to disagree and they're always going to think that that was a misallocation of money. But at the same time, you know, that's they actually have to have a fund, uh, an escrow that that actually provides that convertibility that's that's uh, mandated uh, through the Bitcoin law. Final discussion I want to have with the two of you where I think we've fully established that what we all agree on is Bukele and El Salvador's attempt to adopt Bitcoin is the right step. Some of his other actions are, I think, where we're all, all four of us are in disagreement. And we're just going to go around the full circle because P and I have also somehow interjected and, and shared our opinions on this matter as well. There's no right or wrong answer, but I would like everyone to share how or why they are justifying or condemning what Bukele has done outside of Bitcoin and how that could have an impact, either positive or negative, on the greater adoption of Bitcoin. I will start because I threw a lot of words and probably made that question and statement a lot more complicated than it should. I myself feel as though while Bukele has taken some aggressive actions in this manner, while he has done things that by standards of the United States law, we would condemn and he would be viewed as close to, I would say, almost a, a gang leader in which he condemns himself. I, however, do not feel as though these laws should be replicated and should be held accountable in every jurisdiction. I do think overall his steps towards Bitcoin are the right steps. I do question whether or not he actually understands Bitcoin and sees the grand potential of what Bitcoin can do. I've always been long skeptical of politicians, and he still falls into the camp of people that I quite frankly just think is saying Bitcoin for the sake of garnering more eyeballs and attention for himself and his country. He has done so quite successfully, if I may add, as we have pointed out, the tourism in El Salvador has spiked over the last two years, due in large part to Bitcoiners themselves making this almost pilgrimage down south, south of where I live at least. My one caveat with this will always be, he may be our a hero today in the eyes of some and a villain in the eyes of others, but it's on history to look back and judge this. Ultimately, I think we can, we will just have to wait and allow a few more things to play out. My fear, quite honestly, is countries like Russia, countries like Iran, leaders like President Bukele, or even North Korea, those types of political leaders as viewed as by Western countries, G7 countries today, if those are the countries that first adopt Bitcoin, the rest of the world will be much slower at adopting Bitcoin. But ultimately, everyone, I do believe, will get there. I do think this is a speed bump, if we, if you will, in the global adoption of Bitcoin. Jaime, I present it to you next, Alex, and then P, you will be the last one to share your opinion. So don't fuck it up, P. Sure thing. I mean, okay, so... 
You know, as a Salvadoran, I do have my perspective, and 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 I, I do believe that Bitcoin is the, the right way to go. Uh, I have to keep presenting this to you know Bitcoiners all, all over the world. Is that Bitcoin was not originally designed for Salvadorans, even with the Bitcoin law. You know, the very first part of it is to attract investment into the country. You know, a country that exports very little, that you know has very bit little value add. We have beautiful people, beautiful country for tourism that we want to share with the world. And, and it's a way to, you know, invite everybody in and kickstart the economy. But it's also a way to invest in the rising monetary system as opposed to a declining one. El Salvador has been a dollarized country for several years now, and at a time when the dollar is in decline, you know, it makes sense to make this just purely as a game theory move. And I think that this is where I would disagree with you a little bit, Q, where I believe Bukele understands more than he lets on. He understands the game theory. He was tweeting about adopting Bitcoin back in 2017 when he was being blocked by the people that Alex actually empathizes with now from running for the presidency. And so, you know, I think that what we have to understand also is that there, there is a process. There's a process by which as more people come into the country, introduce Bitcoin, people will begin to accept it beyond El Sante, you know. And I would suggest this to Bitcoiners and people in general that are going there. Yeah, go and visit Chimbera. He's awesome. And Mike and everybody, the whole crew down there. But take some time to go to other places around the country, country to the mountains, to Chalatenango, to Lake Guatepeque, and try to orange pill people there. Because as people see that, you know, the currency that you want to use is Bitcoin, they will begin to become more open and accepting it. And they will see, right now we're in a bear market, nobody wants it, but they will see that as we transition, that some of what you, some of the tips that you gave them, or some of the things that you bought from them, will continue to rise in value, right? And so, I do have my my belief, my or my beliefs and my biases around the country. I think that one of the things that I would highlight is that, and I I would never wish upon none of you or Alex is to know the fear of what it was like during the height of gang extortion to get off the bus and walk two blocks from the bus stop to your house at 9 p.m. at night because you didn't know if you were going to make it alive. That is a paralyzing feeling and to experience it every day, the amount of cortisol that gets injected into your veins not knowing if you're going to see your, your daughter, your sister, your mom and dad. I don't wish that upon anybody and that feeling is gone right now for most people you know if we go by the 80 20 rule you know and and i know that a lot of libertarians will probably reject jeremy bentham's views on utilitarianism but the greatest goods for the for for the greatest amount of people you know that probably doesn't jive well but to get to that libertarian view, you have to sort of go through these steps where you have to do what's best for most of the population, you know, at the, at the risk 
of putting some of these folks that are really bad in jail. Now, there's still habeas corpus right now. It's just instead of 72 hours, it's 15 days, you know, and so it, you know, some of the assertions that Alex makes that people are jailed indefinitely are, are wrong, but I would say that, you know, as Salvadorians and, and they approve 90%, not on Bukele, but on the measures that have been act, enacted to clean up and to offer them safety. But otherwise, I think that, you know, I think Bitcoin's the way and, and we'll see where it ends up. Let's judge in, in 20, in, sorry, not 20 years, maybe 20 months. How about that? Let's judge in 20 months and see where, where they're at. Thank you, Jaime. Alex? Yeah, I mean, look, no one here is arguing that Bitcoin's not the way. Obviously, Bitcoin's the way. I just think that we're going to go through a period of pretty intense global adoption of Bitcoin over the coming decade. All, In my view, all governments and corporations are eventually going to integrate or adopt it in some way. It doesn't mean we have to support those governments. A lot of them are going to do it begrudgingly. A lot of them are going to do it, uh, you know, in a in a way that's sort of opportunistic. I think you can look at a lot of, and I'm, I'm not saying that El Salvador is as repressive as these states. It's, it's, it's not. We should be very clear about that. But generally speaking, throughout history, you've had very repressive states adopt good measures. You've had, for example, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, introduce more private property. Like that was great, but we didn't like cheer the CCP, right? Like Cuban government introduced internet to the island 2017. Is very, very good. It doesn't mean I'm going to go cheer for the Cuban government. The Saudi Arabian government introduced the right for women to drive. Very good. doesn't mean I'm going to go cheer for them. I, I, I think we can observe what's happening in El Salvador and, and, and visit, and you should visit. Dante is an incredible place without needing to cheer for the government. I just don't understand. You have this, all these Bitcoiners who are like cheering for the government to me, you know, ma makes very little sense. So again, we don't disagree very much about Bitcoin here. It was, of course, the right choice. They deserve credit for that. It's just about everything else he's doing. And, I, you know, I think what's 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 been clear is that what the people who are supporting Bukele try to do is they try to dismiss facts as not real or as false. So I'll just remind the audience of a couple things that are, you know, incontrovertible, like these things did happen. I meant, again, remember, this government leader that you are you know, some of you are currently simp simping for, to, to put it lightly, uh, especially in the chat here. <laughs> it's amazing. He detained tens of thousands of people after the COVID breakout in 2020 with, without any sort of due process. Currently in a war against gangs, he has issued a state of exception and there are more than 50,000, 50,000 people who've been detained without any sort of due process. These are actual facts that are not fake. This is not fake news. This is real. More than 30 journalists and activists who are the most high profile ones had their phones spied on with Pegasus software. That's real. That's a fact. And there's a proposed law that could come into effect soon that basically treats any, any organization in El Salvador that receives any sort of foreign support as a foreign agent. And then any, any incoming income from abroad gets taxed to the tune of 40%. Another fact. And then finally, the biggest fact to me, the, the, the really the most jarring thing that changed my mind on all this, because when I first reported this, I was kind of like, well, 
we'll see what happens when it comes to his next term. That's really what it's going to be all about. Is he is he going to do a Hugo Chavez and and try to change the change, change the paradigm so he can rule for longer? That that was the real key here. And I expected it to happen in the next few years. I did not expect it to happen in the near future. And the, the fact that he did it last summer was just so brazen and aggressive. But yeah, I mean, he really got down right to business and he sacked the attorney general, sacked the Supreme Court justices that he didn't like, and he got them to go over a constitutional ban to allow him to run again. And that's really all you need to know about this guy. So I think we should focus on Bitcoin and on separating money from state and on providing Salvadorans the tools to use Bitcoin in a non-custodial manner. And we should stop cheering on this guy who is, as sad to see, has has indoctrinated or, or you know, basically like won over so many people in the Bitcoin community that really shouldn't be cheering for governments. But anyway, ha- thanks for having me. Yeah, I think I can, I'll, I'll jump in here. And I think I'm a huge fan of El Salvador. I'm a huge fan of everything that, you know, that is going on there in terms of the adoption of Bitcoin. But I, I, I will say I am surprised at how willing coiners are in general to put people on pedestals. And I think that I definitely don't have as negative of a view as I think Alex does, but I think that we need to be able to have these conversations critically about the policies and the actions that anyone is taking, right? The same things that we castigate the United States government for doing, I feel like somehow when there is a a person involved who is very pro-Bitcoin and positive for Bitcoin, um, the the larger Bitcoin community has a tendency to kind of give them a pass, especially when it's you know complicated with uh, you know the fact that there are large governmental or uh, sort of extra governmental organizations like the WEF, like the IMF, actively attempting to sabotage those governments' efforts. So it be, it does become a very complicated issue. But I think we really need to hold ourselves as Bitcoiners and as a Bitcoin community accountable for for being able to critically evaluate all aspects of every situation and and really be able to to have those kinds of these kinds of critical discussions without it being about like are you pro bitcoin or anti bitcoin because it's not about that it, it's about being able to view the world as it really is and be realistic and have these meaningful conversations because it's the only way that we can learn as bitcoiners is the only way that we can is by engaging in these sometimes heated conversations so that is my thought Hugh. Yeah, I want to. I want to echo what P said. Just the last part. Nothing else P ever says is valid, anyways. Do, but like the beautiful thing about Bitcoin, as we continue to adopt and grow, is there are going to be a multitude of ideas and perspectives that come into place. And if we are not willing to have difficult conversations and disagree on certain facts, we're we're not going to grow. We will just stagnate, and Bitcoin will, in my opinion, it will fail if we don't accept the fact that if we do have global adoption of what, what's the global population now, 8 billion people, I lose track every day, honestly, but that's 8 billion different ideas. And I think we're naive to think that everyone is going to believe in Bitcoin the same way that we individually believe in it. And so I appreciate both of you sharing your time and perspective today, because these conversations are important. We don't have to leave agreeing on things. We can leave disagreeing. And frankly, I think we're about to leave this conversation disagreeing on a lot more things than we walked in here agreeing on. But I do think it is important because you we need to have these conversations. I think the thing, the reason why I was inspired to reach out to each of you to ask you to join and 
have this conversation is because I myself in hearing the story that I shared of Singapore, it rang so true to what I'm seeing in El Salvador. But of course, there are so many more details in the story of Singapore's growth, as well as what we're bearing witness to in El Salvador that don't get reported on fairly or justly and maybe get over-exaggerated or just misinformation is shared as a result and byproduct. What the truth is of what's going on in El Salvador, I doubt any of the four of us know the whole entire truth, but maybe we could come up with some pieces of it and from that can make judgments on our own. If this conversation was a conversation you enjoyed or even just felt strongly in disagreement with anything myself, Jamie, Alex, or P has ever said, I urge you to take that feeling and go down a rabbit hole, learn more, DM me. I don't care. My DMs get blown up with so many scammers. I could use a DM or two from a real person. Tell me what you find that maybe I, I would be surprised I would disagree with or not, because that is the point of this. That's how we are going to hold this next iteration of politicians accountable. It's by having these hard conversations and then calling to question their actions. Um, Jaime, I give you and then Alex final word each. And again, I really do thank you both for your time and your perspective in this discussion today. Yeah, I just, you know, one of the things that we didn't really actually get to dive deeply into is like how everything has been done by the rule of law, by a democratically elected president and a democratically elected assembly. I think that, you know, I actually spent, was was hoping to get into that and spent some time last night talking to one of the authors of the Salvadoran constitution, which he, he had actually said that uh, that re-election is possible, that the judges were replaced according to, to the rule of law and according to to, in, in the spirit of the of the constitution and uh, no rules were violated of course you know and the funny thing is that you know this was done with their set of rules and and uh, and i think that that's what stinks for a lot of them more but you know we'll leave that for for another time because i, I would love to to really dive into that but what i really want to say is uh, thanks alex i think you know like we probably have a lot more in common than than, than we do and in contrast you know i myself left el salvador because my human rights and my my father's human rights uh, he paid a dear price were violated so human rights are extremely important to me and so but i understand the complexity of of the world and 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 i understand that the dire situation that most uh, salvadorians found themselves because of it. So I want to thank you for having this conversation as well and thank PNQ for facilitating that. And the last thing that I want to maybe say is is or ask Alex is if you if you participate in a stack chain yet. No. Maybe I'm I want to answer. Uh, as far as participation in Stack Chain, I have not. I've not. Nor, no, no. It's, nor, nor do you know Stack Chain is Alex? I haven't had the pleasure. Sorry. Um, no, no. It's it's a random <laughs> meme that people are trying to encouraging people to stack sats even in the bear market. That's basically what it is. Oh well, then sure. Yeah, it's a good idea. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. This has been a good conversation. I like what P said a lot. I, you know, again. I think we need to think adversarially and I'm surprised to see Bitcoiners put so many people on, on pedestals. I think we should try and help Bitcoin adoption in El Salvador as much as we can. And just, just, you know, be skeptical of what you hear out there. Uh, yeah. I mean, the dominant narrative in, 
in Bitcoin land is that is that Bukele is this sort of like awesome, cool, hip hero guy. It's a lot more complicated than that. And at the end of the day, Bitcoin is very important, but it, it's obviously only one aspect of life. And it takes a lot of time to work. I mean, we're, we're going through a very volatile process, obviously, where Bitcoin has lost a lot of value in the last year. You know, this thing's going to take decades to really start to change the world. Uh, and it's begun its journey, but it's going to be a long, long time. And in the meantime, people have to deal with the reality of today. And I'm just not convinced the way that Bukele is running his policy is, 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 is the best way to go about doing things. But I think what, what, what Jaime said is, is a fair argument. It's a fair position to hold that, you know, we need to prioritize, you know, sort of law and order over freedom. I just disagree. So I guess we'll see, we'll see where that, we'll see where that goes. But yeah, I would encourage everyone to continue to support Salvadorans, support Bitcoin adoption there and, and continue to stack and we'll see you around. Thank you both. Thank you to our audience on all platforms for tuning in. Please, 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 if you are not yet subscribed to our channel, smash the subscribe button down below over there on YouTube or up there on Rumble. That's a wrap, guys. That is our episode for today. Tomorrow, we will be back with another exclusive special report with a special guest joining us. Tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale. The Bitcoin print magazine is available at your local Barnes & Noble's at your local Indigo over in Canada, available at the Bitcoin Magazine store as well. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off. That's a wrap. We'll be back tomorrow. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLive for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 Euros for a GA ticket and 3,499 euros for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store, or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.